Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffBeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Monday, so this is an archive show. First published as a newspaper column sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on October 17th of 2016, under the headline, The Day Andy Warhol Punked Oregon College Students. It is a rewriting and thorough re-researching of a much shorter column, first published in November 2008. Here we go. On the evening of October 5th, 1967, students were pouring out of the doors of one of the biggest rooms in the University of Oregon's Herb Memorial Union. It was a big day. The one and only Andy Warhol was scheduled to appear for something he called an illustrated lecture. For the students, it was a once-in-a-lifetime chance to see and talk to one of the most influential characters in the art world. Or so they thought. At last, the man of the hour stepped out on the stage with already legendary film director Paul Morrissey. With his crazy-cut white hair, his ever-present Ray-Ban wayfarers, and his stylish cigarette, the speaker was instantly recognizable as Andy Warhol. Almost immediately, the lecture got off to a rocky start, though. The two men on the stage started an art film showing a young black man in jeans and t-shirt running through crowds in New York City yelling, I love you, I love you, to everyone whose eye he could catch. The film, of course, had no narrative arc or plot. The absence of any such bourgeois conventions was de rigueur in the avant-garde art of the day. So basically, it was just several dozen minutes of that sort of thing until the film ran out of the spool. Then the lights came up and Morrissey asked if anyone had any questions. The questioners started out curious, but soon they were sounding baffled, and by the end of the evening, some of them were actually angry. Quote, I don't know what to say my meaning is, the white-haired artist told one student. I guess it means to me that I film it mostly. Quote, that is one of the big questions, he told another after being asked why he made films. Let's just say we do it to keep us off the streets. As the questions got tougher and more specific, Morrissey started breaking in and fielding them, to the annoyance of students who had wanted a response from Warhol. By the end of the event, the students from the School of Journalism were starting to make their presence known, firing zingers at the white-wigged swinger on the stage. "'Sir, do you give a damn?' one of them demanded. Former students and colleagues of the late legendary journalism professor Bill Winter will instantly recognize the pedigree of that question." The by-now beleaguered speaker replied, hesitantly and vaguely, Oh, sure, about all kinds of things. It changes all the time. The Oregon students didn't know it, but they were looking at one of their own up there on the stage, a University of Oregon-trained actor named Alan Midget, who was now one of Warhol's cronies at the factory art loft in New York City, who'd been dressed up to look like Warhol and sent out to do a series of four college lectures for him. Warhol himself had never left New York. The University of Oregon appearance was the second stop on the tour, and it represented a distinct turn for the worse. At the University of Utah, where it had started, the reception had been warmer, but almost as soon as he'd left, faculty members were wondering if it was really Andy Warhol. 
The student newspaper there stepped up and started pulling together evidence, including a shot that one of their photographers had snuck of him during the visit. Warhol had been very insistent that no pictures be taken, but someone had anyway, likely intending it only as a personal souvenir. Close examination had left them convinced that unless Warhol had had a nose job, the speaker had been someone else. And so it was that the day after Warhol spoke, Chris Hoam, then the editor of the University of Oregon's student newspaper, the Oregon Daily Emerald, got a phone call from an editor at the University of Utah's student newspaper, the Utah Daily Chronicle, asking if there had been any suspicion of Warhol's identity. Hoam assured her that it had been Warhol that appeared at the U of O, but after the phone call, Emerald staffers started connecting the dots as well. By this time, of course, Warhol was well away from the scene of the crime and moving on to his next appearance at Linfield College in McMinnville. There, the reception was considerably less hostile, according to the recollections of Mount Angel College art professor Leland John, who traveled to McMinnville to attend. This was clearly due in part to the fact that, mindful of the trouble his vacuous answers had caused at the first two stops, Midget had adopted the tactic of responding to most questions by simply issuing an ironic laugh or giggle. Then it was on to Montana for one final appearance at Montana State University and home once again to New York. But by that time... Back in Eugene, Register Guard reporter Don Bischoff had actually gotten through to the source and blown the cover off the whole thing. Quote, We had an aging hippie working on our copy desk named Bill Thomas, Bischoff recalled later. Somehow he had the number for the payphone on the wall at the factory, so I called the number and Paul Morrissey answered it. Morrissey had clearly made a variety of arrangements in case the rubes got suspicious, but apparently it had never occurred to him that any of the hinterland yokels would be hip enough to actually know the phone number on the factory's ironic payphone. Caught by surprise, Morrissey stammered a bit, then put Warhol on the line. And after some head-scratching over how Bischoff could know that it was the real Warhol this time, the artist confessed the whole thing. He was better than I am. Warhol told Bischoff, he was what the people expected. They liked him better than they would have liked me. Quote, his explanation of how they sent the guy didn't make sense, Bischoff recalled. I still think to this day he was pulling another Andy Warhol spoof and proving a point that people wouldn't know the difference. The student journalists in Utah, whose skepticism led to the full unmasking, seemed distinctly unimpressed. In a telephone interview, Morrissey told Chronicle assistant editor Kay Israel that impersonating each other was just regular hijinks for the world's self-styled avant-garde golden boys. We do it a lot in New York, he explained. Well, being from the West, I don't think we're quite used to it, she shot back. Paul Craycroft, the director of lectures and concerts at the University of Utah, was even more acerbic about the whole thing. Craycroft, who had learned of the scam early enough to withhold payment for it, said he'd be open to having other pop artists come and talk at the U of U, quote, if they're wonderful and can assure us somehow that they're coming themselves. Asked how that might be accomplished, he quipped, blood tests and fingerprints. Key sources in this story have included works by Alan Gregg, the personal recollections of Don Bischoff and Leland John, and the archives of the Eugene Register Guard and Oregon Daily Emerald. That's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. 
What you've been listening to is one of more than 500 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Other Offbeat Oregon goodies include an active Facebook page, a Twitter feed, a ton of historic photos, and a bunch more stuff. Plus a book, including visuals for today's show and full citations to sources. All these things are accessible via our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Facara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) 